Welcome to Episode 9, Season 5 of the I Want to Believe Podcast. I'm Nomar Slavik. I'm Kyle Sawyer. In 1978, five men mysteriously disappeared on a mountain in California. Tragically, a month later, most of their bodies were discovered. The strange circumstances surrounding their deaths has since been referred to as the American Dyatlov Pass Incident. Kyle and I actually covered this story in season one, but we were just novices at podcasting, and not that we're professionals at this point, but our audio quality has gotten better, and we thought it would be good to revisit this unsolved case. The mystery, heartbreak, twists and turns, and the numerous unanswered questions likens this case to the 1959 Dyatlov Pass incident in which a group of nine Russian hikers were found dead under mysterious circumstances. There have been countless television shows, movies, and podcasts about that case. In fact, there's a recent documentary called An Unknown Compelling Force available on Amazon Prime. With all this information available about the incident, we will not be covering it here. We will, however, share what is known about the Yuba County 5 story in just a moment. Before we jump into the episode, I did want to give a reminder that all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. And my brand new book, We Only Come Out at Night, is now available for purchase. This book is a collection of short horror stories and can be found online at slavicstore.company.site. You can also get it at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine. Just check the show notes for that link and more. All right, let's get into the Yuba County 5 incident. February 24th. It was on this day when the lives of five longtime friends would converge. 30-year-old Jack Madruga would make his rounds within Yuba City in Oroville, California to pick up the others for a night out at a Chico State basketball game. 29-year-old William Sterling, 24-year-old Jack Hewitt, 32-year-old Theodore Wire, and 25-year-old Gary Mathias made up this close-knit bunch, commonly referred to as the boys, and they were all eager for a night out before competing in a basketball game of their own. They didn't make it back home that night. Cynthia Gorney wrote a detailed article about the incident for the Washington Post in 1978. The following is that article. There was a half moon that night, a winter moon and a cloudless sky. Up in the mountains above the Feather River, the snowdrifts sometimes rose to 15 feet. You need a coat, Ted Weir's grandmother had said, watching him go. Oh, Grandma, I won't need a coat, Weir had said. Not tonight. 
Two hours before midnight on February 24th, when the basketball game ended at the California State University at Chico, five young men from the Flatlands, 50 miles to the south, climbed into a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego and drove out of the parking lot. They were fans of the visiting team, which had won. They stopped three blocks away at Bears Market, mildly annoying the clerk who was trying to close up, and bought one hostess cherry pie, one Langendorf lemon pie, one Snickers bar, one Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. Then they walked out of the store, got back in their car, drove south out of Chico, and disappeared. Ted Weir's grandmother woke up afraid at 5 a.m. the next morning. Ted's bed was empty. The house was still, and it was not quite light, and this is how the horror began, as it often does. No crash, no wailing, just a dim morning chill in a small house on what ought to be an ordinary day. Imogene Weir got on the phone and called Bill Sterling's mother as fast as she could. Monita Sterling had been up since 2 a.m. Bill didn't come home either, she said. Mrs. Sterling had already called Jack Madruga's mother. Jack also had not come home. Mrs. Weir called Jackie Hewitt's mother, and Mrs. Weir's daughter-in-law walked down the street to talk to Gary Mathias's stepfather. All five friends had vanished. At 8 that evening, Mrs. Madruga called the police. The boys had never done such a thing before. They were men, really, not boys. Hewitt was the youngest at 24, and Weir was 32, but their families called them boys. Our boys. They lived at home. Four of the five had been diagnosed with developmental disabilities. Madruga was undiagnosed. They were supposed to play a basketball game of their own on February 25th, part of a tournament with a free week in Los Angeles if they won. Their clothes had been laid out the evening of the 24th before they left for Chico. Each had a beige t-shirt, the words Gateway Gators emblazoned across the chest, from the Yuba City Vocational Rehabilitation Center where they all played basketball. Weir had asked his mother to wash his new white high-top sneakers for the tournament. He had scuffed them while trying them out. Matthias had just about driven his mother crazy with the game. We got a big game Saturday, Matthias kept saying. Don't you let me oversleep. Saturday came and went, and no word came. The police began to take interest. On Tuesday, February 28, they found Madruga's Mercury, and from that day on, nothing they found, nothing anybody told them, seemed to make any sense. The car was 70 miles from Chico on a deserted and rut-ravaged mountain road. It had stopped at the snow line, and although its tires had apparently spun, the car was not really stuck. Five men could easily have pushed it free. The gas tank was a quarter full. Four maps, including one of California, lay neatly folded in the glove compartment. The keys were gone, but when the police hot-wired the car, the engine started immediately. Both seats were littered with the wrappers of the food bought at Bears. Everything had been eaten except the marathon bar, which was half gone, and the car's underside was undamaged. This heavy American car, with a low-hanging muffler and presumably with five full-grown men inside, had wound up on a stretch of torturously bumpy mountain road, apparently in total darkness, without a gouge or dent or thick mud stain to show for it. 
The driver had either used astonishing care and precision, the investigators figured, or he knew the road well enough to anticipate every rut. The family say only Madruga drove that car ever. And the family say Madruga, who disliked camping and hated the cold, did not know that road. None of the boys knew the road, as far as anybody could tell. Once about eight years earlier, Bill Sterling had gone fishing with his father at a cabin not far away, but he had not enjoyed himself and had stayed home the few times the Sterlings went back. Three years earlier, Weir had hunted deer with friends in the Feather River country, but it was quite a way west of the area where the car was found, and his family says he was not keen on the forest either. With the exception of Matthias, who occasionally stayed out all night with friends, each of the lost men led mostly stay-at-home lives of such scheduled predictability that no one could fathom what or who might have taken them up that lonely road in the mountains. A storm whistled in the day the car was found, dropping nine inches of snow on the upper mountain. The search teams nearly lost men themselves two days later as their snowcats struggled through the drifts. Nobody found anything, not so much as a shoe, at least not until after the spring thaw. On June 4th, a small group of Sunday motorcyclists wandered into a deserted forest service trailer camp at the end of the road and inhaled a nauseating smell. It was Ted Weir, stretched out on a bed inside the main 60-foot trailer, frozen to death. Eight sheets had been pulled over his body and tucked around his head. His leather shoes were off and missing. A table by the bed held his nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, his gold necklace, his wallet with cash inside, and a gold Waltham watch, its crystal missing, which the family say had not belonged to any of the five men. Weir had been a tall, heavy-set fellow back in February, 5 feet 11 inches, 200 pounds. By the time his body was found, he had lost 80 to 100 pounds. His feet were badly frostbitten. The growth of beard on his face showed that he had lived, apparently, in starving agony inside that trailer for anywhere from 8 to 13 weeks. He was 19.4 miles from the car. Weir, wearing a striped velour shirt and lightweight green pants, had walked or run or been somehow taken in the moonlight through almost 20 miles of four to six foot snowdrifts to reach the locked trailer where he died. The trailer had been broken into through a window. No fire had been built, although matches were lying around, and there were paperback novels and wood furniture that could have burned easily. More than a dozen sea ration cans from an outside storage shed had been opened and emptied, one had been opened with an Army P-38 can opener, which only Madruga and Matthias, who had served in the Army, probably had. But no one had opened a locker in the same shed containing enough dehydrated dinners and fruit cocktails and assorted other meals to keep all five alive for a year. No one had touched the propane tank in another shed outside either. All they had to do was turn the gas on, said Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers and they had the gas to the trailer and heat. All through the spring, the search had practically consumed Ayers. He had gone to Marysville High School with Weir and his brothers. Although he had not known them well, there was something about the silent disappearance of five strong men that haunted him like nothing he had ever investigated. 
The leads were drifting in from all parts of the country. The men had been seen in Ontario, Tampa, and had been seen entering a movie theater in Sacramento accompanied by an older man. Ayers could punch holes in all of them. Skeptical but desperate, they consulted psychics. One told them that they had been kidnapped to Arizona and Nevada. Another said he had been murdered in Oroville in a two-story red house, brick or stained wood, with a gravel driveway, and the number 4723 or 4753 meant something. For two solid days, Ayers drove every street in Oroville looking for that house. It did not exist. Before long, he could rattle off their names and vital statistics almost automatically. Theodore Earl Weir brown eyes, curly brown hair, handsome beer-bellied, friendly and trusting. Jackie Charles Hewitt, 24, 5 feet 9, 160 pounds. Jack Anton Madruga, 5 feet 11, 190 pounds. High school graduate and army veteran, brown eyes, brown hair, heavy set. William Lee Sterling, 5 feet 10, 170 pounds, dark brown hair, blue eyes, deeply religious. Gary Dale Mathias, 5 feet 10, 170 pounds, brown hair, hazel eyes, 25, assistant in his stepfather's gardening business, army veteran. By late spring, Ayers was dreaming about the quintet. He once woke in the darkness, arms outstretched. He had almost embraced all five. Finally, after many agonizing months investigating, a tip came. A man who saw lights on the road. Joseph Shones, age 55, told police he drove his Volkswagen Bug up that same road sometime after 5.30 the evening the men disappeared. He said he was checking the snow line because he wanted to bring his wife and daughter up that weekend. His car got stuck in the snow, just above the snow line, about 50 yards beyond the place where the mercury would be found. And as Shones was trying to free his car, he said, he had a heart attack. Doctors later confirmed to investigators that Shones had indeed suffered a mild heart attack. Shones said that he laid in the car with the engine on and the car heater going. Sometime in the night, he heard what he described as whistling noises a little way down the road, and he got out of his car. What he saw looked like a group of men and a woman with a baby walking in the glare of a vehicle's headlights. He thought he heard them talking. Shones said he yelled for help, but the headlights went out and the talking stopped. Shones then got back into his car and laid down again. Sometime later, maybe a couple of hours, he saw lights outside his car window. Flashlight beams, he said. Again, he called for help. The lights went out and whoever was out there went away. Shones said he laid in the car until it ran out of gas, and then while it was still dark, he walked back eight miles to a lodge called Mountain House, where he had stopped for a drink before heading up the road. Just below his Volkswagen, in the place where he had heard the voices, he passed the Mercury Montego, sitting empty in the middle of the road. The day after Weir's body was discovered, searchers found the remains of Madruga and Sterling. They lay on opposite sides of the road to the trailer, 11.4 miles from the car. Madruga had been partially eaten by animals and dragged about 10 feet to a stream. He lay face up, his right hand curled around his watch. Sterling was in a wooded area, scattered over about 50 feet. There was nothing left of him but bones. 
Two days later, just off the same road but much closer to the trailer, Jackie Hewitt's father found his son's backbone. Ayers had tried to talk him out of joining the search, fearing something like that might happen. But Hewitt, whose first name is also Jack, had insisted on going. There were a few other bones around, along with Jackie's Levi's and Ripple-soled shoes. An assistant sheriff from Plumas County found a skull the next day, about a hundred yards down the hill from the rest of the bones. The family dentist identified the teeth of those of Jackie Hewitt. Hewitt's remains had lain northeast of the trailer, like Sterling's and Madruga's. Northwest of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, searchers found three wool forest service blankets and a two-cell flashlight lying by the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been turned off. It was impossible to tell just how long it had been there. They found no sign of Gary Mathias. His tennis shoes were inside the Forest Service trailer, which suggested to investigators that he might have taken them off to put on Weir's leather shoes, particularly since Weir had bigger feet and Matthias's feet might have swollen with frostbite. But that was pure conjecture, which was all they had. Authorities in the area had received a description of Matthias, slender, dark-haired, double vision without his glasses. He was not carrying his billfold when he left the house for the Chico basketball game, so he had no identification on him, and if he was still alive, he had been without medication for the last four months. Matthias took his medicine weekly, as he had for at least three years, Stelazine and Cogentin, both used in the treatment of schizophrenia. His family says the illness appeared five years ago while he was in the army in Germany. Police records show he had become violent on occasion. He was charged with assault twice, and there was a difficult period after his return from Germany when Matthias would fail to take his medication and lapse into a disoriented psychosis and would be admitted into a Veterans Administration hospital. For the last two years, though, Matthias had been working steadily in his stepfather's business and was taking his medication so faithfully that a local doctor who knows Matthias well calls him a sterling success case. Clough said his stepson took his medicine the week he disappeared. What I looked for all the time I was up there were his glasses, said Clough. I didn't think the bear would eat that. During this interview, he is sitting at his dining room table. His voice is gruff. He is tired of reporters and tired of the pain and tired of not understanding what happened to the boy. Ida Klopf, across the table from him, says she had not turned on her television in weeks because she does not want to find out that way. She says she is going back up there on the weekend, back up to see if she can find something the searchers missed. Bizarre, says John Thompson, the special agent from the California Department of Justice, who had joined Ayers on the investigation. And no explanations, and a thousand leads. Every day you've got a thousand leads. They learned that a Forest Service snowcat ran up the road to the trailer on February 23rd, leaving a packed path in the snow that the men might have followed. Ayers and Thompson took a dowser up this path, who used a divining rod to try and pick up traces of human minerals. This led the searchers to a deserted cabin near an abandoned car. And besides the watch found near Weir's body, they also found a gray cigarette lighter, the disposable plastic kind about three quarters of a mile northwest of the trailer. The family said none of the boys carried a lighter. 
They discovered that Gary Mathias knew people in Forbes Town, which is about halfway between Chico and Yuba cities, on a road with a turnoff so easy to miss that anybody driving it late at night might have ended up heading north toward the mountains and lost. But none of it helped. The cabin found by the dowser was empty. The cigarette lighter might have been dropped by a hiker. The watch might have belonged to a forest ranger in the trailer months earlier. And Matthias's friends in Forbestown said they had not seen him in a year. And suppose the men followed the snowcast tracks. Suppose that was how Weir made it through 20 miles of deep snow. The question is, why? Why abandon a perfectly operable car to strike out into the forest at midnight? Why press on through 20 miles of snowdrifts and darkness to break into a locked, unheated trailer? Why drive all the way up there in the first place? And how? If someone chased them, why was the car undamaged? What were the whistling noises and the voices Shones heard on the road? It doesn't add up. There was some force that made him go up there, Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, says firmly. They wouldn't have fled off in the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand on those five men, but we know it must have been. Ted Weir's sister-in-law said, They seen something at that game, at the parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize they seen it. Klopp said, I can't understand why Gary would have been that scared. Even a fire. All those paperbacks and they didn't even build a lousy fire. I can't understand why they didn't do that unless they were afraid. But he cannot imagine what they were afraid of. Neither can the investigators. They can't prove there was foul play. And they can't explain it if there wasn't. They don't even know if Gary Mathias is dead. They think it's probable and that his body was in the snow and that the spring thaw came and eased him down deep inside some thick green patch of mountain brush. Even knowing that four of the five men had died, investigators could not completely explain what had led to their deaths. They had found no explanation for why the men were there, besides the possibility that Matthias might have convinced the others to visit his friends in Forbes Town and had gotten lost on the mountain road. Further still, investigators couldn't explain why the men had left the Montego, and instead of going back down the road where they had passed the lodge that Shones later returned to, continued up the mountain road. Purposeful motion like that is not consistent with the circular patterns traveled by those who genuinely believed themselves lost. The day before the men went missing, a Forest Service snowcat had gone along the road in that direction to clear snow off the trailer roof so it would not collapse. It was possible, police believed, that the group had decided to follow the tracks it left through snowdrifts four to six feet high to wherever they led and the belief that shelter was not too far away. It is assumed that Madruga and Sterling probably succumbed to hypothermia midway along the walk to the trailer. It is also assumed that once they found the trailer, the other three broke the window to enter. Since it was locked, they may have believed it was private property and may have feared arrest for theft if they had used anything else they found there. After Weir died, or the others believed he had, they perhaps chose to attempt to return to civilization by different routes on foot. To this day, their deaths are unexplained and Gary Mathias has been missing for 43 years.
And that brings us to the end of the Yuba County Five mystery. Kyle, is there anything that you want to add at all? Well, I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, and uh, one that I'm not sure we're ever going to get a full answer to. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. It's I think this is truly an unsolved mystery that might really stay that way. Unfortunately, uh, no way unless. For some strange reason, Gary Mathias is still alive somewhere. That we'll ever know what happened. Yeah. All right. See you in the next one. See you in the next one. Don't you forget about me. says the illness <laughs> his family says the illness appeared five years ago why fuck i can't do this anymore and yes and it does seem like my mic is still working so that's good had stayed home from the f- jesus but he had not enjoyed himself and had stayed home the f- fuck <laughs> with his father at a cabin <laughs> at a cabin torturous torturous <laughs> Torturously Bumpy Road Mountain. Wow. <laughs> bumpy Road Mountain. <laughs> bumpy Road Mountain home. Torturously in total darkness. You McKinnon. How about you fucking start this thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't leave that in. <laughs> I'm just joking. Shone said he lied in the car until it ran out of gas, and then... Laid? Hmm? Laid? He laid in the car? Fuck you. He was enormous... He was enormous... (laughs) He was enormously attached. It's not even close to Mammoth. I don't know what you're doing over there. I'm saying enormously, but not well. I'm not sure you are saying that word. <laughs> it's, I'm not saying mammoth. It definitely sounds like you're saying mammoth. You fucking weirdo. <laughs> <sighs> he was enormously... I can't say it. Enormously. Enormously. <laughs> Just change it to very. <laughs> he was very attached to his... But this is the article. Nobody's going to look it up and be like, oh, they changed. I might just pronounce it then. (laughs) Enormously. Okay, you just said it, so you can just edit that in. And listen to the Rollins. (laughs) You got the the giggle. (laughs) I do. (laughs) 